Need a few minutes to reset? Great Minds is a podcast from SBS that guides you through different meditation styles from around the world. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Playlist with Ben and Fiona. There were some fascinating and disturbing experiments that were done around the 50s and 60s. Welcome to The Playlist, where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams, and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV shows at SBS, and I'm joined by my co-host, SBS channel manager, Ben Nguyen. Hey, Ben. Hi, Fiona. I happen to know, Fiona, that you had an award-winning weekend. Oh, do you know? Thank you, Ben. Thanks for bringing that up. (laughs) Yes, little eyes on Gilead. In the podcast space. Well, thank you, yes. I mean, it could have been anything. Who knows? But um, (laughs) no, it couldn't. What else do I do? Um, (laughs) Who am I? And also producer Jeremy and the team from Eyes on Gilead landed a bronze award at the Australian Podcast Awards on the weekend. So Yeah, congratulations. Congratulations to you and Jeremy and the rest of the presenting team. Um, if only we knew when the next season of Handmaids was due so that we could all get ready for another round of Eyes on Gilead. It's true, but yes, no idea. <laughs> so we'll live on past glories for a while yet. <laughs> we, all we know is that 2021 will be a bigger, better year because it'll have more of your podcasting in it. Oh, you? <laughs> <laughs> but enough about me. How are you? You've got some news. I do have some news, but I will first let our listeners know that this week on the playlist for your speaking to Brandon Cronenberg, the writer-director of new sci-fi horror flick Possessor, and I'm taking a look at the new season of The Crown as Prince Charles finds his princess and lives happily ever after, maybe. (laughs) Have you watched it? And in a very special wedding edition of What Have You Been Watching?, Fee and I will compare notes on our favourite wedding scenes in movies. Spoiler alert, Ben's getting married. <laughs> that that might be the, the pretext for that discussion, um, but it is very exciting and, uh, of course, um, movies are very much going to be an inspiration. Ooh. <laughs> I say that now, well. now. Now I don't know if I can live up to it, but anyway. Now you've got to change everything to planning. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Sophie. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, we've got a lot to get through. So where do we start? Sophie, amongst your other award-winning activities, you've also caught the new horror sci-fi flick Possessor from the writer-director Brandon Cronenberg, a man with a familiar surname. Yes, he does. Uh, yes, son of David, for those who are wondering. I bet he loves being introduced like that all the time. But, um, yes, just one would think. Um, Yeah, so Brandon Cronenberg uh, made Antiviral a few years ago now. I think it's going back about eight years. So he's got his follow-up film out in cinemas now called Possessor. So he works in, you know, the sci-fi space and the horror. um, Probably it's an inherited trait. (laughs) Who knows? Mm. um, And this one, it's a high-concept sci-fi where there's brain implant technology and basically... A hired assassin takes over the body of a victim and that person then does the assassinating. You with me? <laughs> I'm intrigued. Yes. And so, and you buy it. Like it, it, it doesn't focus on the technology of how that's all done. It just does and there's a weird kind of a looks like a VR rig that goes over the head and what do you know? Um, this assassin, Voz, played by Andrew Riseborough, She's in the body of Christopher Abbott and he, as her, stay with me, (laughs) then has to undertake this weird graphic uh, assassination. Our next contract's a big one. The target is the CEO of the largest operation in the US. He'll be binding to Colin Tate. We can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready? So it's all about living in someone else's skin and we see glimpses of her home life when she's not in other people's bodies and she's far more comfortable with her job than she is being herself. And there's a great um, support role by Jennifer Jason Lee, who's, who's sort of the... Um, oh, yes. 
CEO of this weird company. Um, and so she oversees the whole operation and, you know, sees Andrea Riceborough go in and also brings her out and uses a few totems of her life to try and recalibrate her to make sure that she's herself and she's not got elements of this other person she just was. Well said. Well, <laughs> I'm sure it, that makes a whole lot of sense. Well, it sounds very of the time because I feel like the plot of 2020 would be incredibly hard to explain, but, you know, could be simply characterised as a sci-fi horror flick. So, you know, it's, it's yep. uh, hitting the current mood. Yeah, pretty much. And we're all just surrounded by totems that make us recalibrate to make sure who we are <laughs> and what day it is and which Zoom call am I on today. <laughs> yeah, no, it, sound, it sounds cool. So um, mm. I can't wait to hear what uh, Brandon had to say. Yes. So he joined me on a Zoom and I have to say there's one goal when you're a journalist doing interviews for someone who's been doing press for their film that's been out for a whole year. You want to ask that one question no one else has ever asked. And I got one in. <laughs> so that was it. She shoots, she scores. I know, right. Every other one he's probably been asked a million times. <laughs> but, you know, I got that one. So that was great. <laughs> so here's Brendan Cronenberg. Hey, Brandon, thank you so much for your time. I, it's really great to talk to you. I saw the film at Monster Fest a couple of weeks ago, so I was able to see it at a cinema, which is <laughs> which is great. This year you're never quite sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a rare treat. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's the best way to see it too. Um, look, one to start with, I mean, your film is about, you know, a corporate assassin who seems much more at home in other people's bodies than in her own skin. Opportunities for metaphors arrive. Um, I don't know where to start with all the metaphors in that, but I'd, let's start with you. Um, the germ of the idea, where did, where did this all, all start from for you? Uh, well, it came from a, a kind of trivial personal place in a way. I, I was uh, doing the press tour for my first feature, Antiviral, uh, and it's a strange thing when you're traveling with a film for the first time because you're sort of uh, consciously or unconsciously building this public persona you know you go around performing this version of yourself it's like a media self or, or some double that then goes off and has a weird existence without you online uh, and so because of that and a few other things i, I was finding uh, i was waking up in the morning and feeling like i was sitting up into someone else's life and having to scramble to construct a character who could operate in that context uh, so i wanted initially to to write a film about someone who may or may not be an imposter in their own life as a way to talk about how we build characters and, and narratives to to function as people. And uh, then the sci-fi thriller elements came out of that as, as I was developing it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, this interaction between us, it's not, <laughs> not a natural chat, is it? It's, um, you know, I tend not to draft questions for my everyday interactions, but, yeah, we've kind of putting on a... <laughs> Sometimes I wish I had, but yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be a good way to operate. It's just who has the time. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, bringing in the sci-fi elements, you know, having this corporate assassination world, um, you know, is it so far-fetched as well? Sort of, um, what is, how did you research that? Um, and, yeah, you know, we've heard of MK Ultra and things, but um, how can we, yeah, talk about the idea of bringing in that kind of corporate assassination world? Sure. Well, I, I spent a fair bit of time researching the neuroscience behind it, not because the intention was to make realistic technology, just out of curiosity. And so what I would say is that the technology to a certain degree is feasible. There, there were some really fascinating and disturbing experiments that were done, especially around the 50s and 60s uh, with, with brain implants. And uh, I read a book written by this doctor, uh, Jose Delgado, who was a Spanish doctor who uh, worked in the United States uh, implanting animals and, and eventually human patients with uh, electrical stimulators. He called them stimoceivers that were basically receivers with wires on the end so he could remotely stimulate certain parts of, of the brain and, and that would allow him to control a, a kind of a, alarming range of motor function and emotional function and, and behavioral function. And in fact, there's a, a scene in the film where there's a, a bull on television that's this documentary footage. And that's actually one of the experiments he did. He implanted this bull with a, a stimoceiver and got into a bull ring with it. And uh, and it charged him and he was able to cause it to veer off before it, before it gored him. So the science is there. But what I would say is that for the technology in the film to be realized in reality would probably take many, many years. And I didn't really want to make a far future uh, predictive sci-fi film. The, the technology in the film is intended to be 
metaphorical and, and to be used as a way to discuss identity and, and the way we operate. So the film's actually set in a kind of alternate timeline, not that it matters, but it's set in 2008 in Toronto in an alternate timeline where this technology is developed. And that was just for me to compartmentalize it so that I could be free to use those things however I wanted in this kind of alternate universe way. Mm, yeah, the detail is there, but yeah, it's far more about the impact on the individual, isn't it? Yeah, that's far more interesting. That's where the drama lies. Um, and, you know, maybe it's because of this year and the election and the pandemic and, um QAnon, um, just thinking of the idea of people being susceptible to <laughs> to control or just these ideas. I, um, I think it's Tate in the film that mentions that Parasite could be an idea that takes hold um, mm. in the body. Yeah. Can we can we elaborate a little on that point? Am I drawing too, too far a, too far? No, no. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, those aspects of the film have become more relevant since I started writing it. I started writing it in 2012. And so some of my initial interests were first of all just behavior the way our brains work and to, to me I, I don't think that we have this kind of coherent identity i think that's something we sort of apply after the fact uh, to who we are but every person is really a, a kind of chorus of conflicted impulses and, and ideas some of them which originate from inside us and some of them which don't and so that was initially where I started. Then the Snowden leaks happened and I started to add some of the political surveillance elements. And I think even from the time that we shot it to the time that it was released, the other aspects of it, the, the kind of uh, social mind control aspects of it uh, as a metaphor have become much more relevant. Uh, I, I was interested in that stuff to a certain degree, but now it really reads like a reaction to, for instance, uh, you know, Russian interference in the US elections and all, all of these, these aspects of uh, mass manipulation through media that would have seemed like crazy conspiracy theories even a few years ago, but now which are, are just the basic realities that, uh, that we're dealing with. So that stuff is there. It's become more forefronted, I think, through no uh, <laughs> intention of my own, but it's to a degree on my mind when I started and now it feels like sort of the, the central aspect of the film. In some yeah. Way. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and um, with the central character of Voz, you know, a white woman who we see her go into, you know, the body of a black woman, then of a white man. Curious in how you chose the bodies she'd go into and sort of the drama inherent in, in those moments. Um, yeah. How did you choose who she'd? Who she'd become? Uh, in well, in the in the case of Colin, when I actually initially was outlining the film, Voss was a man because I was responding to my own experiences, and I just in a lazy way defaulted to a male character. But then I thought, first of all, it's sort of boring to me. I, I just wrote a male character, and, and secondly, it's a little bit cliche because we've all seen those films where the the kind of father and husband is detached from his family because of the horrors of his work. You know, we've seen the Hurt Locker, we've seen those things. Uh, and then, of course, the, the obvious thing is that it's more interesting if, if she's spending time in a male body because you, you can play with uh, those aspects of her character coming through in, in a kind of feminine way and it, give, it, it gives the actor more to play with to, to sort of demonstrate her character through gender as well as, as through dialogue. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and working with Andrea and Christopher, you know, essentially playing two sides of the same coin um, in the most intriguing moments of the film. Yeah, how did you work with them on that? And, I mean, they're actors. Obviously they <laughs> play other people all the time. But, um, yeah, your process with, with them. Uh, it, well, it was interesting because I initially was on the, on the verge of going down a bit of a rabbit hole with them where I was trying to figure out a formal uh, system for allowing them to both play the same role. And I was wondering whether one of them wanted to take the lead and the other one wanted to, to imitate them, or did they want to be on set for each other's scenes and, and how could that work? Um, in practice, it was, it was actually a very organic collaborative process because they're both incredible actors and they're, and they're great to work with. And, uh, they brought so much to the characters. So, I had my own specific ideas for how the two performances could overlap. They had ideas that they brought to me. This was all before we started shooting. Uh, during the shoot, I understand that they were in touch with each other uh, between scenes to 
discuss how Voss would behave under certain circumstances and check in to make sure that they, they were in sync that way. And then in a scene by scene way, I worked with them individually. So it was all built out collaboratively in, in a surprisingly easy way. Yeah, great. Um, and with Jennifer Jason Lee, um, how did she come about? And I guess leads to another question is like, it invites comparisons with your dad's work with um, <laughs> existence. I don't know if that's that annoys you that that happens, but um, yeah, was that a bit of a nod to that? Um, how did she come about into the into the film? It wasn't it wasn't intended as a nod. It's just that my father's had a long career and he's worked with a lot of really great actors, so it becomes hard sometimes to completely avoid people who he's, who he's worked with. Um, in the case of Jennifer, I just first of all, I think she's a brilliant actor in general, and also. With that role in particular, there was a danger that it could be boring with the wrong actor because performed the wrong way, Gerder becomes this sort of ex exposition character and a, and a kind of non-character. But with someone like Jennifer, nothing she does is boring and she, she's always going to find an interesting way to get into the character. And she brought a lot to it. All the, the elements with the cream and the, and the mixing the vitamins into the water, those were things that she wanted to be able to play with the character. And, and so she really charged it with this, <laughs> this kind of energy. Yeah, no, she's so great. And I love the scenes of bringing Voz back out and just the ideas of these artefacts that will trigger something. And, you know, that also seems a little bit performative as well. Um, that idea of how to bring someone out of, <laughs> um, you know, being in the machine. Um, sorry, not saying this well at all, but the idea of using artefacts in that way. Can you expand a little on the thinking there and, and why, why you chose the particular piece that you have? Ah, no one has ever asked me that question. <laughs> so, uh, those were pieces uh, from my life, actually, not spe not specifically those, but they were similar to things that I have that, just from my past. And uh, I like the idea of someone trying to recover their identity through these sort of physical nodes or, or the, these things that they've build their identity around and, and these memories, of course, that are associated with them. Oh, okay. Well, I'm pleased to hear no one's asked you that one before. <laughs> so that one that no one would have asked. <laughs> yeah, and I've, had, I've had a lot of interviews yeah. right now, so that's, it's rare to get a completely new question. <laughs> well, happy to help in any way I can. <laughs> um, let's see if I can do another one. I'm not going to, I'm sure. Um, oh, I guess expanding on that idea of the world we're living in now and how to deal with um, bringing people out of this kind of cult mentality that some people have. Um, I don't expect you to solve everything, but just do you think that can help to wake people up a little bit from the moment we're living in? I don't know. That's a big philosophical question that I'm <laughs> putting to you. Can, can art do it? Are you asking? Like, yeah, art, in art general? And, and just reconnecting with things that we identify with. I don't know. I, probably not. Probably not. Because I think what is so dangerous and what we need to deal with in the next couple of decades of, of human existence is that these forms of manipulation are completely invisible to us. So everybody who's going around having an opinion that was crafted for them by a foreign state is doing that not knowing that they've been manipulated and they will completely dig their heels in when confronted with that information and insist that no, it's them. And if anything, I think, cling to that position even more strongly. So to a certain extent, I think we can shed light on these things by discussing them and, and by drawing attention to attempts to manipulate, but also it, it's so inherent to just how the technology works. I mean, you know, Google's entire model is data mining and, and more and more we will become very predictable and malleable and in a sense hackable by people who have access to this constant information stream that we're exposed to. That sounds in some ways very old. I sometimes feel like an old man raging against social media, but it isn't that. It's just the reality. I mean, so much of who we are is sculpted by this information that we're exposed to constantly. And people have access to the details of our psychological landscapes through the information that we put back out there. And that's something that I think we're only just starting to recognize as being a serious problem and, and what that means yeah. for human society in the next couple of decades is hard to completely see right now. I think we're in a transitional era. 
Yeah, no, it's so true. And we'll still keep giving each other listening devices for Christmas. And I guess <laughs> for sure, I have so many listening devices. I mean, <laughs> the flip side of it is the technology is absolutely great and wonderful. I'm, I'm not a technophobe at all. I love that stuff, but it's also completely changing what we are uh, and in, in some dangerous ways. Yeah, no, it's so true. And your film, was it Sundance? just as COVID was hitting elsewhere, um, and now it's coming out <laughs> during. Um, yeah, what, how have you been using the time during the pandemic? What, how have you been, um, have you used it creatively? Like are you sort of madly writing films and writing scripts? What have you been up to? Uh, I've, been, I've been doing my best. I, yeah. I really, there was a, a very long development period between my two features that I hope to not repeat. So I've been trying <laughs> as much as possible to set myself up to be able to uh, shoot as soon as I'm able to. And, and I know some people who are shooting, I mean, film production really shut down at the beginning of the pandemic, but it's now starting to open up in, in various ways as people figure out protocols that seem to be working and keeping sets COVID-free. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to shoot something soon. And if not, I guess the vaccines help us. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, right? Do you think we'll have a rise of pandemic movies and will anyone want to watch them after having lived through it? I hope you haven't written a pandemic movie. <laughs> no, 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 I, I haven't. I'm interested. I mean, there already are pandemic movies coming out. I think there's a Michael Bay produced a pandemic movie that, that, that's coming out. And I, I have a friend who shot a movie during lockdown with somebody. I don't know if people want to see that or what the approach is. I think part of the difficulty is that certainly with horror and science fiction, when there is a, a virus movie, the virus stands in for other things. It, it, it's metaphorical. And so how do you make it worth shooting a virus movie right now? Because the virus can't stand in for anything else. We, we take it so literally. It's like trying to shoot a film about eating breakfast and, and uh, where breakfast is a metaphor for something else. You know, it becomes very, very difficult to make that worthwhile. Uh, so it'll, it'll be interesting. I, I don't know. I think certainly this is, we're all having this sort of bizarre relationship with the same virus and, and to a degree art can and should deal with that. But I, <laughs> it's hard to say. I don't, I don't think it's enough to just sort of make a movie where there's an outbreak because we're, we're living that. Yeah. Yeah, it's been done and in the real world too. Um, and have you have you been binging a lot? Have you been watching lots of things? What what's? Uh, not actually. I've, I've been. I owe, I owe a lot of writing these days, so I haven't been watching <laughs> as much as I should be. <laughs> That's fine. Everyone else is making up for it. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, look. Thank you so much. I know you're a man in demand this morning for um, interviews, but no, it's been. Lovely to talk to you, and yeah, I really love the film too, if I didn't mention that before. Lots of good stuff in there. Oh, thanks. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Thanks for talking to me as well. So that was Brendan Cronenberg, the writer-director of new sci-fi horror flick Possessor, and where can we see that, V? Uh, that is in limited release in cinemas, so um, yeah, that's fun. Go and do that if you can, and I think we all can around Australia now, so yeah, get out there. Yeah, exciting. And good to hear he's been using his uh, pandemic time wisely and being productive. I know, extremely productive, writing scripts and reading books and not just staring at his phone doom scrolling like I have. But anyway, <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I've just been watching television. Uh, in fact, the new season of epic royalty drama The Crown um, out on Netflix. Your Majesty. I think we have enough respect for one another personally to ask ourselves some of the bigger questions. Woman to woman. We are the same age after all. Really? Just six months between us. Oh? And who is the senior? I am. Ma'am. And so this is season four. Now, uh, have you heard of uh, the royal family, Fee? In passing, yeah. I know of them. I know there's been a few documentaries about them around some of them on SBS, but, uh, yeah, I know of them. I'm not a hardcore viewer of The Crown, it must be said. I watched the first season and enjoyed it, but, yeah, I've not kept up to date. But maybe this season will bring me back in. Have You've watched all seasons? 
Yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I think um, Olivia Coleman um, took over the role of Elizabeth in the last season and, and, in fact, this is her last season in that role and then the baton will be handed on um, next. But I think that what the show does do well is the story of the royal family is very much a soap opera and that's the way that we often get told it through the gossip magazines and in the, the UK, the tabloid newspapers. But I think what what The Crown does well is it pulls you in with the soap opera, but then what it actually allows the show to do is is give you a history lesson of the, the period in which it's set. And this most recent season is bookended by the election and then the sort of abrupt departure from office of Margaret Thatcher. So this is mm. the... Thatcher's Britain season of The Crown. With um, Gillian Anderson in that starring role. Yes, Gillian Anderson, the partner of the the show's writer, Peter Morgan. And um, she really does do an incredible job uh, channeling Margaret Thatcher. I I think, um, you know, we've seen um, occasional depictions on screen. We've, of course, had Meryl Streep playing... uh, the Iron Lady um, mm. at one point. Um, and I think sort of it's very interesting for where you personally sit politically because it's quite a sympathetic portrayal of, of Margaret Thatcher. But over time, some of her, the, the sort of strictness of her political ideology comes through and, and you begin to see, um, I guess, sort of the, the way in which she in this portrayal anyway, paints herself as, as a woman who came from a very middle-class background, the daughter of a shopkeeper, um, didn't have the privilege of birth that Queen Elizabeth, of course, did. And, and you know, the two were pitted together, pitted against each other on occasion in the regular meetings that the Prime Minister has with the monarch. Mm-hmm. And really she's though she does feel this mission to transform Britain into a place where you either work hard and succeed or you fail. And that, of course, was the, the rather brutal reality of, of Thatcher's Britain is that, that many were, were left in a, in a very challenging personal and financial positions. And, and, and that leads yep. us to one episode, which was a standout episode, where a working-class man who had lost his family in, in a kind of custody battle, breaks into Buckingham Palace and has a 15-minute conversation with Queen Elizabeth mm. sharing his feelings about Thatcher's Britain. And what the show does in that episode is, is takes that away from being just a, a kind of shocking event and sort of turns that into sort of a real moment of understanding for Elizabeth of... And, and, and I suppose sort of brings out that connection that she feels for her subjects. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, interesting because it was always reported as a bit of a, as a major breach of protocol and and whatnot. That the real event, but yeah, okay, it's interesting that that's in there. And the the other major storyline of this season, which is, I, I guess, kind of what a lot of fans I would say have been waiting for, is the Charles and Di story. And so we get Prince Charles who has had this relationship with Camilla, deeply in love with her, but she's not seen as an appropriate match for him. And so as we've seen through other characters' storylines in The Crown, once again, your heart and your sense of duty are pulling you in two different directions. And so Charles does meet this you know, very young, 18-year-old, sort of young woman, like very, very different in personality in her own life experience. And for mostly superficial reasons, the firm, you know, the family of, of the palace collectively make the decision that this is the right match for him and this will be the future queen of England. But um, as we know, that didn't come to pass. Correct. Um, yeah, and I just as an aside, I have heard friends who are talking about being midway through the crown and whatnot and then just doing the whole, oh, no spoilers. <laughs> it's sort of, I mean, 
Guys, this is very recent history. So anyway, I have to laugh when people are worried about spoilers in the crown. But <laughs> yeah. yes, it didn't all quite work out for Charles and Doug. Yeah, we so we don't actually see the the famous wedding um, mm. between uh, Charles and I, and and apparently the reason for that is because you know that exists on YouTube and captured by endless cameras. So we see other moments. We see the rehearsal um, ahead of the wedding, and we see um, Diana, who is almost kept as a prisoner within Buckingham Palace in the lead up, with no contact from Charles whatsoever, as she out of boredom, pulls on her roller skates and Walkman and um, skates through the, the halls of power. Um, <laughs> so As just expressing her sort of, you know, teenage desires for sort of fun and, and, and all, you know, that whole world is about to be taken away from her. But mm-hmm. um, I think sort of what I found really interesting is, is it's a much more sympathetic portrayal of, Prince Charles's side of that relationship than what I'm used to. I mean, the actor of Charles is, uh, I think, very, very good. And he, um, I mean, I, I don't think I've, I've ever realised how slouchy and pouty and sulky Charles is, sort of according <laughs> to this. But, but nonetheless, he does seem like, you know, a deeply wounded, deeply intelligent man that does have this genuine bond with the very high energy Camilla mm. and Diana has very little to offer him. And if anything, she comes across as a, as a bit of a brat. And, a, and so there is like, I think a bit of an attempt to rewrite the public affection in, in these relationships. Oh, that's intriguing. Yeah. And it's good to hear that it's not, repeating the same scenes we've seen in the same outfits and the same moments that, and just analysing it if they get the eye lines right or whatever. The, the dress is in there, isn't it, with its miles yeah, and some yeah. sleeves. Yeah, I, mean, I think we see it, it from but, behind, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, the, um, yeah, it's good to hear there's nods to those moments that we all identify with. But, um, yeah, it sounds a bit more maybe true to the loveless match that, that we've all heard about in the documentaries. Yeah, well, it underlines, I guess, the purpose of the crown, which in taking, in dramatising the lives of these completely public figures, is trying to take us into those internal moments and that didn't play out in the tabloids and yeah. and what are the, the stories between them. But I think, you know, we also sort of see the consequences of the terrorist actions by the IRA in this season. We see mm. um, a lot of drama play out around the plan to place sanctions on South Africa because of apartheid. Richard Roxburgh, who um, neither of us are hugely uh, fans of, but um, he gets to replay his role of Bob Hawke. And, um, he does a good hawkey. Yeah, yeah. And as Charles and Di do their tour of Australia and New Zealand and Bob attempts to try and use that as a springboard for the Republican movement in Australia and what that that does to to threaten the crown. (laughs) Spoiler, not much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good. And um, I have seen some funny moments on on Twitter and whatnot of where scenes are made to look like Brisbane in 1982 that are very much not Brisbane in 1982. It's always fun to see your own country depicted when clearly it was shot elsewhere. Yeah, I think for a show that does have huge budgets and obviously has a lot of locations doubling as existing yeah. locations, including all the manor houses and castles, etc. And uh, Australia does get that treatment with apparently they, they shot pretty much all those scenes in South Africa. So uh, doing double duty as Australia, even the sheep at the sheep station don't quite look like Australian sheep to my eyes, but, you know, <laughs> oh, that's nitpicking, you've got a very surely. Particular, you've got a good eye for that kind of thing, Ben, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, who we'll knows We'll do a sheep-themed when... episode sometime in the future, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, save it, save it. Mm. <laughs> yes, but who knows in the world we're currently in, things are going to have to double for other places a lot more. It happens all the time, but, yeah, we just get funny about it when it's Australia, don't we? Um, yeah, <laughs> but, no, intriguing. Okay. Well, that's The Crown season... Four. Four. Okay, good thought. We'll have to get onto that on Netflix. So all this talk about unions of Charles and Di that, let's face it, 
wasn't a great match. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird segue. There's a few weddings, uh, well, let's say marriage do's and don'ts in that pairing, I think. Correct. <laughs> Take notes. Um, <laughs> yes, we were thinking in honour of everyone but me apparently watching Crown Season 4, but mostly in honour of Ben's upcoming canubials, <laughs> we'd talk about weddings and the way movies structure themselves around those events or sometimes it just happens to be a wedding in a movie that's about something else and mm. the memorable memorable moments thereof in them. So we're going to do a bit of a shot for shot on great movie weddings. I love a wedding in a movie. I, I sort of joked before that uh, movie weddings had influenced my planning, but, I mean, for example, I love those outdoor marquee weddings that happen in in movies where you know they're out on the lawn and um you know sort of maybe there's a band playing in the corner and i haven't borrowed all those aspects but there's a there's a sort of some of those influences have definitely seeped into what i've wanted out of getting hitched excellent look forward to it what's one movie reference like that that um that's inspired you i don't i don't know sort of whether this is positive inspiration or not, but I thought I would start with mentioning a movie that it's hard to talk about weddings and, and not mention this movie. It is um, The Wedding Singer. Yeah. Directed by Frank Karachi and starring Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. Set in the 1980s. And a real pleasure of this movie is just those horribly dated 1980s weddings. Um, and uh, it, it serves as a good reminder that you should not go too far out into the fashion of the day or else you will be haunted by your photos and videos forevermore into the future. Yeah, try not to be um, <laughs> right on the cutting edge of fashion. Yeah, go for a cl- timeless, a classic look perhaps and then you'll be happy with your photos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, talking of dyes, wedding sleeves, good Lord. It also has um, a very amusing scene with Steve Buscemi giving a drunk best man speech and having pretty much to be dragged off stage. And that's also a reminder not to have uh, drunk people that hate you give speeches at your wedding. <laughs> Correct. I think that's something that for everyone, yes. <laughs> <laughs> or at the wedding at all, Yes. <laughs> What, what about you? What's uh, what's a wedding movie or a scene that's spoken to you? Yeah, well, I too thought of um, The Wedding Singer. That is a lot of fun. Um, look, and this is a weird one for what brought us into this conversation, but maybe not so much. I thought of Melancholia, sort of the Lars von Trier film that's kind of a lovely, lavish outdoor wedding that takes place on the eve of the apocalypse. But I thought You've sort of flipped that in that it's been, it's 2020, you're getting married at the end of the year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've taken everything in your stride for the wedding of the year and it's the only wedding that I know of that's happened this year, so good on you for getting in there. Yeah, this very lavish film with Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, and the wedding, the marriage is more, uh, as with a lot of these films, it's, you know, the symbol of other things and, um, yeah, it's more a metaphor for things. But, yeah, end of the world is coming. Who knew? No one in that film. (laughs) They just wait it out and things get weird. Well, on the topic of high concept movies around weddings, recently I checked out Palm Springs, which is um, out now on Amazon in Australia, and it stars Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti, and they play not the betrothed couple but two people who basically... uh, hook up at the wedding and then get led into a time warp, which uh, is not much fun for anyone. <laughs> I have seen this film, yes. Um, I like it very much. Like it's a slow reveal of the concept, but it's in the synopsis, so I don't think it's a spoiler to say. But he is certainly living this Groundhog Day, so he's been to this wedding who knows how many times he speaks like it's been happening for years and he remembers every time and he's very jaded. So he's stuck in an infinite loop and then through circumstances, so is she. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's Groundhog Day. Of course it is, um, but it, it plays with the science of that in ways as well. Um, and, 
yeah, there's a bit more pain to it in some of the comedies as well. And I think Andy Samberg's really good in it. Um, and I'm not always a huge fan of him, but um, sometimes they just cut the day short because it's like, no, <laughs> and then the day restarts so you don't have to wait out the whole day. But um, no, I think it's really good. And again, it's a good one for 2020 because haven't we all just sort of been living the same day <laughs> a little bit? Yeah, um, for sure. And yeah, I think it so- actually does, there's something about it that captures being at a certain point in a relationship, at a certain point in your life, where you're maybe sort of attending a lot of weddings and, you know, not sure whether you're yourself ready to make that leap. And there's something, I think, that feels truthful around the ways that these two characters are figuring each other out Mm. in the fact that they're having to kind of go through this experience over and over and what that sort of starts to reveal about who they really are. Yeah, agreed. I think, and that, like that's where it, it plays in the rom com kind of world, and it that's where it's nod to Groundhog Day, which is why Groundhog Day you can watch over and over again. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a really really good addition to that concept, um, and it's completely relevant to our current discussion. I'm going to jump to another high concept sort of time travelly movie. Mm. Um, okay. The deeply romantic about time from um, Richard Curtis. <laughs> Um, which isn't in itself a wedding movie, but I think it is a really sort of sweet movie starring Donald Gleeson as a man who learns he has the ability to travel through time and the way that he does use that to shape his romantic life. But it, it does have a very disastrous wedding scene where the married pair emerge from the church and the weather turns in a very terrible way and uh, the, the whole wedding kind of gets rained out, which sort of living with doing some wedding planning right now is a very great fear of mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Check that long-range forecast. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, Richard Curtis, I feel like you can't mention his name without going to one of the, the granddaddies of wedding films in, in recent memory, which is Four Weddings and a Funeral. Well, mathematically, I mean, it needs a mention alone. <laughs> Yes, of course. Um, yeah, that one I haven't watched in a few years, but um, yeah, you know, it, it holds up. It, it's spawned a whole range of not so great ones in its wake. And I mean, it will, it certainly set Hugh Grant up for rom com work for many moons. It did. Um, yeah. It, um, I mean, I, I sort of just remember one of the things I sort of liked about it is um, I mean, obviously, we do see, as in the title expresses, we see four different weddings that are in different sort of styles and scales. and But um, I think in some of those weddings there's a there's just sort of a, a real naturalism and I, I um, it reminds me of another wedding scene in a favourite movie of mine, The Commitments, yeah. where they discover the lead singer of the band when he jumps onto the mic at a wedding. And just sort of those cutaway shots of like little children in, you know, in that case, little Irish children sliding on their, you know, in their socks kind of across the dance floor. That does feel to me true of, of weddings that I attended when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, doing the chicken dance and all that <laughs> on the floor. I hope that wasn't just me. <laughs> and not only when I was a kid. Um, yes. And you know, it's fairly recent that we've had marriage equality um, mm. across the world, really. Um, and we haven't really seen a great spate of queer-themed wedding movies yet. I was no. sort of trying to rack my brain for one to include in here, but um, yeah, I was because I thought also the wedding banquet, but that's pre-marriage equality when it's very much about Ang Lee's wedding banquet, of course. Um, yeah. yeah, you know about a Taiwanese property developer in New York who is a gay man and has to fake a wedding for his parents to get them off his back for marrying, and um, yeah, which is you know that whole farce kind of story that playing with cultural expectations and whatnot. Um, great movie. Mm. Um, I love that movie. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Um, but yeah, I think we we need we need to have a spate of queer themed wedding movies to um to add to the canon. <laughs> so if I'm forgetting anything, please you know let me know on Twitter. But yeah, we haven't had too many yet. Yeah, that's a good point. The wedding banquet does remind me, sadly, not a queer wedding film, um, but a wedding film that did 
break some barriers, which was Crazy Rich Asians recently, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, you know, really put Asian actors as the romantic leads in, in a hugely successful way. Yeah. In a big, lavish, hugely successful way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Totally. And it was fun. Um, yeah. And we need a whole lot more of them, I think. I'm going to turn now to a couple of favourites of mine. But this is sort of where the wedding really is, there's actually some heartbreak sitting behind it. So going to an Australian film first, again, I just feel like we can't have this conversation without talking about Muriel's wedding. It was going to be my number one. Oh, cool. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, go. Well, I think that, you know, obviously Muriel is so invested in this wedding representing everything that she's ever sought for in life and, and the escape from the world that she grew up in. And it doesn't end up offering her all of that. And, and, you know, that's the big, big lesson for her. I mean, I mean, it is a very beautiful wedding scene, and but I think sort of what makes it sort of even more memorable is the fact that you really do know that she's going to be heartbroken ultimately. Yeah, poor Muriel Heslop. All she wanted to do was get married and <laughs> ends up in a marriage of convenience with an Olympian. Yeah, and it's L- like a you way do. to get to heartbreak. I mean, yeah, you know. <laughs> Coulda, woulda, shoulda, but, yeah, Mariel, she changes the name, Mariel Van Arkel. Um, Yeah, it's a short-lived honeymoon, but she gets the photo spread in Woman's Day (laughs) and she does look gorgeous on the day. But, um, yes, no, it takes a while to learn the lesson that it's not all about the dress, it's about the Mm. union. Um, Yeah, no, this is one of my all-time favourite movies, let alone a wedding movie. And I interviewed PJ Hogan for Mental, which sort of riffed on the same because it was yeah, about his family, yeah. but um, and I couldn't not share with him how much I was obsessed with Muriel's wedding, and um, he challenged me on my fandom, and I quoted the line about the you know the bitchy women who were cleaning up the house after Betty, and she goes, "You're right about those cupboards." Mm. Um, anyway, deep dive, and he said, "Geez, you are a fan." So <laughs> yes, I am very much. <laughs> so I'm glad you mentioned it because I was going to as well. So yeah, just the best and fantastic performance by Tony Collette, just embracing. Yeah, once once again, just sort of uh, a performance that kicked off a really extraordinary career. Yeah. Speaking of PJ Hogan, I feel like he also made a, another hugely successful wedding movie, and I can see you <laughs> rolling your eyes a little bit, but mm. but that also had heartbreak at the heart of this wedding, which is my best friend's wedding, where yes. Julia Roberts is so in love with her best friend and tries to sabotage the wedding and ultimately doesn't succeed and and realises that that's for the best. Yes. I forget that PJ Hogan also made that, you know. (laughs) It's it's the movie he got to make in Hollywood after having made Muriel's Wedding and um, bigger, lavisher. Um, You get Julia Roberts at the peak of her powers, um, Cameron Diaz and such. Um, Yeah, yeah, look, it's big and fun. I've just seen it so many times it's always on somewhere. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I can see why people love it. And I, I do have one more and I'm going to stick mm. with the Australian theme and also the heartbreak at a, at a wedding, which is, this is not really what I want out of life, but, you know. <laughs> it was um, a good idea at the time. <laughs> but, but maybe it's what I want out of a movie. Well, if all wedding theme movies were happy and all about just the relationship working, they wouldn't be very exciting movies. So, yes, this is the opposite of what you want yeah. your wedding slash marriage to be. So uh, this is one of my favourite movies um, and one of my favourite Australian movies, Thank God He Met Lizzie. Ah, um, yeah. Starring Richard Roxburgh when I like to think he was a bit uh, younger and um, less full of himself. <laughs> sorry, sorry, <laughs> Richard, if, sorry you're, if you're listening. If you're listening. He said that. <laughs> um, and a young Kate Blanchett. Yes, a young, very beautiful Kate Blanchett, and the we see their wedding play out across the course of the movie, and then meanwhile, what drives the narrative is his flashbacks to his previous relationship with a woman played by Frances O'Connor, and his uh, gradual realization, I think, that that she was the one that got away, or maybe he knew it all the time, but I guess sort of everything about the way that that relationship worked 
contrasts with the relationship that he's entering into now. And I think it's a really beautiful movie. I think it's a very funny movie and I think it's a very heartbreaking movie. Yeah, good call. It's underrated, I think. And little seen, that one's not on all the time, unlike My Best Friend's Wedding. No, good, good point. It's been a while. Have to have to look that one up. Yeah, I advise that for everybody. Um, have you got any more weddings <laughs> just to, to sort of give us a boost? Uh, give us a boost. Yeah, we've left one down in there. Um, oh, what have we got? Well, I haven't actually got it on my list, but I've just I thought of one before when you were talking about the marquees and whatnot. Um, and given you're having a destination wedding, um, <laughs> I thought of destination wedding, which I may have mentioned on the show previously as what I was watching. But um, anyway. Keanu and Winona together again as guests at a wedding who really, they're not particularly close to the couple, so they they more go for just the wine and a weekend away. And then, of course, they hate each other on site and, of course, they're meant to be together and, of course, they go and shag in the wilds of wine country and whatnot and it's just a hoot and they're having a great time and it's a great time watching them. Is it a memorable movie? Not so much, except it is to me. Um, Destination Wedding, I don't know where you can watch it. Saw the DVD and bought it and maybe you should too. Yeah, no, I I haven't seen that. Um, Not many people have. I doubt even Keanu and Winona. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'll have to sort of um, rummage through my local DVD um, bargain bin. Um, I'll lend it to you when you get back from (laughs) here. Yeah, no, that sounds like a good one. Good times. So on that note, this brings us to the end of our wildly themed wedding episode, (laughs) um, which is all to say we're going to be off for a couple of weeks because of Ben's upcoming nuptials. So wishing you and your beautiful bride all the very best for your day. And um, we hope it's free of all the dramas that we talked about in the wedding movies we spoke about today. It's going to be great. Oh, thanks, Fee. That that really means a lot. It is our last show for a little bit but please make sure that you subscribe to SBS The Playlist wherever you get your podcasts and give us a lot of stars and leave us a nice review because it helps people to find the show and you can let us know what you thought of movies and TV shows we discussed and particularly any favourite wedding movies on Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies and I'm on Twitter at TV. And I'm on Twitter at anything but Fifi. And the playlist is produced by the award-winning Jeremy Wilmot. Until next time. Thanks for listening. And happy wedding, Ben. to reset great minds is a podcast from sbs that guides you through different meditation styles from around the world listen wherever you get your podcasts